to sense. So we're now in, what is it, our third lecture. Um, and today and our next session, we're doing, in a sense, what to my mind are two of the most interesting things we're looking at. Uh, so next, thing, next session, we're going to look at the whole notion of sin and freedom. Um, but today we're looking at the, the roots of this desire for happiness that's just embedded in all of us. And what that's been connected with is the image of God within us. Because this desire for happiness is this in us because we're yearning for God. And this yearning for happiness is, even before we know it, actually a yearning for God. So, as other weeks, I'm going to start by mapping some things out here. Um, so, there is a... Um, have you heard of Exodus and Redditus? Exodus and Redditus, exiting and returning. So there's this theory um, that the entire Summa Theologica is actually structured around this, that where have we come from? We've come from God, and therefore we return to him. Um, so God is perfection. God is beatitude in his very self. And having come from him, what we're yearning for, we are seeking fulfillment and perfection. And we are seeking beatitude, we're seeking happiness. Which even before we can put a name to it, is a seeking for God, because it's just part of what he is. So if you think of your philosophy, um, every nature seeks its end, and man seeks happiness. And if we think of the desire within us, what are we desiring? Well, we're desiring, St. Thomas Frazier, is it the good? We're desiring particular individual goods to get that. Um, we're desiring the attractive. Now, we'll come back to that a lot more next week in terms of how that goes wrong in sin because I only ever sin because there's something about the sin that looks attractive that the forbidden fruit looks tasty if it didn't look tasty I wouldn't want to eat it Now, some colour here. I want to distinguish the body and the soul, the physical and the spiritual. 
sapped. So if I put two opposites, pleasure and pain, as physical things, and contrast those with two other opposites that are spiritual, namely joy and sorrow. So it's possible to be in physical pain, but still actually have a spiritual joy. Yeah, so that I'm contrasting a bodily state and a spiritual state. Conversely, somebody might be kind of stuffed with physical pleasure, but nonetheless be spiritually miserable. Um, so these things aren't opposites, but they're not, they don't always go together. So you can be miserable in your sorrow and in physical pain, you could be in sorrow, but stuffing yourself with pleasure to try and hide it. Um, so, joy here, this is our spiritual level. Whereas pleasure is about things that are physical. Now, St. Thomas uses a technical word. He will refer to um, delectatio. Um, you'll have the spelling for that in the notes in a minute. Whereas the Latin for joy um, is gaudium. Pleasure is caused by contact with something, something physically pleasurable. So here I have brought, as a visual example, some cookies that we, you will have the opportunity to share at the end of the meal. Um, it's the contact, physical contact with a cookie that does something to me at a physical level in terms of causing pleasure. And when that contact finishes, Actually, the pleasure finishes. Yeah? So, the cause here is contact. It's temporary. And it's not shareable. This is a rather important point. So if I give you my cookie, I can't have the pleasure. So you're saying it has to be something physical? Cause that pleasure? Because you can it's have a physical pleasure. Okay, okay, so you're okay. I was going to say because you can delight in an idea too, right? Right. But then we're on the spiritual right. intellectual okay. plane. Yeah? Okay. So back to not being able to share physical pleasure. If I give you the thing that causes physically the pleasure, 
I can't have it myself. If I give you the cookie, I can't have the pleasure. Pleasure can't be shared. Or if I share the cookie with you, we each only get half the pleasure. Spiritual things are actually the reverse. So, again, if we think about cause, so it's being united with something spiritual that causes the joy. But the type of union isn't like the cookie. It's not like you physically devour it. Your spiritual union that causes spiritual delight that's a different type of contact. It's a different type of union. And what that means is whereas the cause of the contact in physical things passes quickly, spiritual union is lasting. And the spiritual joy, therefore, is lasting. And it's shareable. So if instead of me eating the whole cookie myself, I share my cookie with my friend, I have less physical pleasure, but that thing about sharing with a friend, I have more joy, spiritual. Yeah? So spiritual things, when we share them, actually increase in delight and joy, whereas physical don't. I'll go through this more slowly in the lecture. This is a mind map of where we're going today. Max was ahead of me already in the point I want to next make. Um, if we imagine a thing, an object, um, this, I need to tell you what this is because my artwork is so good. Um, that's an eye. Does that kind of look like an eye? Mm -hmm. Some of you are not. <laughs> I'm going to use that image repeatedly over the next three weeks, so try and absorb the fact that that is an eye. And the point is, it's looking at the object. Um, and it is engaging with the object in different ways. So you can apprehend, we'll use this word apprehension repeatedly, uh, next week, really. Goodness, spelling. Um, you can apprehend it physically. But you can also apprehend it spiritually. So I look at the cookie and, you know, at just a physical level, I'm looking at its size, beginning to imagine its texture, I'm thinking about what it's going to taste like. Um, but I can also do all that kind of intellectually. I can be thinking about just how there are better cookies and lesser cookies. And that this looks like it's going to be a really excellent cookie. And that I can just see, and I know where I got it from. 
um, and just intellectually I'm comprehending it. And then I might be comprehending it thinking about how grandma used to make cookies, just like that. And so there's a whole intellectual engagement in which the cookie doesn't just mean for me something physical, but it's something that links me with grandma, links me with America. You know, it's an American cookie. Um, so that I'm engaging with it not just physically, but spiritually. So that the physical thing causes in me a reaction that isn't just physical, but spiritual as well. And that has significance for, in a sense, a whole way of engaging with reality. Do I just engage with things in a purely physical way? Or do I engage with them intellectually, spiritually, so that actually I see the cookie as part of God's creation? That's a whole another level. It's not just reminding me of grandma, it's reminding me of the source of everything. And I, I delight in the cookie as a part of experiencing God's goodness to me. Okay, so that's kind of a mind map of some key things we're going to look at in today's lecture. So let's go to today's lecture notes. So page one of the notes there, just got a few introductory comments really, just pointing out where we are in the catechism in terms of the structure of what the catechism is laying out for us. So the little first section of the catechism where we're beginning, we've got three things that are connected together. The image of God in us, the vocation to beatitude in us, and human freedom. And these are the first three articles we're going to go through. Um, and today what we're looking at is the image of God and beatitude. Now, actually, even before that, in the introduction to the first chapter, Article 1700, um, as I point out, it indicates what the next eight chapters of the Catechism are going to take us through. So first, that man has dignity made in God's image and likeness. This dignity is fulfilled in our vocation to share in the divine beatitude. That it's only by freedom that we're able to direct ourselves to that goal. That the type of thing beatitude is, you can't experience it if you're a plant. You have to be this type of thing that is free to be able to engage with beatitude. So that freedom is part of the introductory structure here. Then it'll go through how our good or evil acts either do or don't bring us to God as that promised fulfillment. About how our conscience is given to us to help us judge whether good or evil um, is in our actions. Then we'll look at the passions and how those have developed into the virtues. And the virtues are those things whereby even in this world we are already sharing in the beatitude. And then lastly, um, how even when we sin, 
um, and the mercy, the mercy of God can enable us to return to the path of our vocation to him in the perfection of charity. So that first introduction to the, this section of the Catechism is mapping out the next eight chapters. All right, so I've already briefly touched on this thing, and I'm not actually going to expand on this in great length, um, but this notion of exitus and relitus, uh, that we come from God in creation and are called to return to him, that we're made in his image, and so it's in him that we find fulfillment and beatitude, and unique in all of material creation, we do this in freedom. That only free beings can share in his beatitude. Now I'm actually going to structurally leap us somewhere ahead. If you turn to page Page five, the section there on happiness. Have you done in philosophy the Nicomachean Ethics? Okay, so basically this page is summarizing a bit of the Nicomachean Ethics, blending in there a bit of Aristotle um, about this quest for happiness that's within us. So if you remember in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle four different ways he analyzes human activity to try and figure out what is the end of human activity. And in each of those different ways, he comes back to the end being happiness. This is what we're looking for. Okay, so go through my notes on the page here. So happiness and the final end of human action. So say, all things act for a purpose. For example, a plant acts purposefully, but by instinct. It doesn't intend to grow. It doesn't intend to reach from the sun. It just does it by instinct. But it does act with a purpose that's built into it, its end. Humans, rather, act consciously, but they nonetheless act for a purpose. We move ourselves according to our purposes. Um, St. Thomas talks about uh, sort of non-conscious actions may be actions of a man, but they're not properly human actions, that they're not proper to man as man. So my stomach digesting my food, this is an action of a man, but it's not a properly human action. It doesn't make me distinctly human. All kinds of things digest food. We're wanting to think what is human action. Not just an action of a human, but that action that makes me different to other beings. So the point, um, Aristotle, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, they're all saying human activity acts for the sake of a final end. And I note there that we, we have this modern secular view that there is no end activity, only many short-term goals. So, you know, people s sometimes say, well, you know, I'm free to be what I want to be. And the, you know, the existentialist thing, that you 
make yourself during your life into whatever you want and you're just somehow the sum collection of your experiences but there's no kind of driving narrative. Well, St. Augustine um, in his confessions would say that that's, that's rubbish. If you look at human activity, you can actually see something consistent that everybody is looking for, that everybody is looking to be happy. So the quote there from him, he says, uh, all men desire joy, all men desire a blessed life, all men agree on desiring the last end, which is happiness. And the Latin he's using there is beatitude. And he notes that men don't agree on what happiness is, or where they'll find it, but everybody's wanting to be happy. That's why we do things. Um, I pour myself a cup of coffee because I think I'll just be a little happier with the cup of coffee. I eat the cookie because I think I'll just be a little happier with the cookie. Um, even the moody teenager who is refusing to enjoy himself. Even the moody teenager is kind of wallowing in his misery, enjoying being miserable. That even when he's lowered his goal that much, he's kind of only doing it to get a rather weird kind of happiness out of wallowing in his misery. So that in everything, we are seeking happiness, even when we kind of make happiness a rather weird thing that we're aiming for. We're always doing something thinking we're going to be a bit happier if we do that. So I say here, all humans seek happiness, but humans disagree as to where they think they will find happiness, that nobody seeks to be unhappy. Even those who perversely seek misery do so because they seek some happiness in it, in the misery. Now, more technically, I don't know if you've done this in philosophy, but um, I'm sure you will do if you haven't. This thing called the good. So you're built with this desire for happiness in you. Well, how structurally do you get happiness? Well, happiness isn't just a vague thing out there. You look for specific things to get you happiness. I buy a car, I buy a house, I buy a cookie. Um, the particular things, what the philosophers call goods, I think that by getting goods, I will get happiness. And because those goods somehow have the appearance of things that will provide happiness. That's why I'm looking for them. So back to my notes here. Quoting St. Thomas more technically, he says, whatever man desires, he desires it under the aspect of good. Somehow it looks good to him. Good in the sense of desirable. So formally... The end of every act of the will is goodness. Materially, the material end of every specific act is a good, a specific thing. 
So to achieve happiness, humans pursue goods. And then I'm here quoting Augustine. He says, we only love that which is fair, beautiful, apt, and so forth. And we need to remember with Augustine, this is a man who has spent much of his life wandering through sin, but he's looking back on his life saying, well, in everything I was looking for, I was looking for the good. These things that somehow were attractive to me were attractive because in some sense they are goods. You know, they're from God. They're all parts of his creation. And even when we seek them in the wrong way, we're seeking them because they somehow share in his goodness. If it truly looked repulsive, if it truly looked ungood, it would be impossible for me to feel attracted to it. So back to our moody teenager. The moody teenager who refuses to eat the delicious meal that mummy's created, uh, spicing himself, what's the good he's pursuing there? Well, there, he's denying himself the good meal, but actually there are things he is realizing within himself. He's seeking to fulfill himself by asserting his independence and so forth. That there are other goods he is seeking to achieve by refusing to enjoy the food. But whatever he's doing, he's doing it because there's something in his action that has the formality of the good, the appearance of the attractive. Okay, back to my notes here. So, coming down to the kind of the, the crunch question here. In what does happiness consist? You know, what is happiness? So, humans seek, happy, seek goods thinking that the possession of them will bring happiness. But, um, so Aristotle and St. Thomas, they both kind of map out the same analysis, looking at all kinds of different fields of human activity are the things that people spend all their energy seeking, thinking that they'll be happy. If I, you know, if I have that bigger house, then I'll be happy. The thing that's stopping me being happy now is I don't have that bigger house. Or my beautiful wife. Or... But they say happiness doesn't consist in wealth or honours or fame or glory, or power, or pleasure. Neither in any created good, or bodily good, or even, St. Thomas says, any good of the soul, <clears throat> that none of these is sufficient to satisfy as the end. They're merely means to the end. The big house isn't the end. It's a means to the end. It's happiness I'm wanting. So the comprehensive good that possessing it would give me what I'm looking for, the only good that can satisfy must be a comprehensive good encompassing all other goods. And so St. Thomas concludes, human happiness consists in God alone. 
and that this yearning within me for happiness, this yearning within me for good things that will bring me happiness is actually a yearning for God because only he is capable of being adequate to this yearning that is structurally within Did you go through that in the Nicomachean Ethics or at least aspects of that? In one, we're taking ethics right now. So okay. We're not particularly doing that. And you're doing just a few weeks of Aristotle, or maybe like four weeks. He's going pretty slow. Yeah. We're on book one. Book one. Okay. <laughs> but if you're doing all of Aristotle in four weeks, that's still pretty fast. Okay. Um. So, this quest for happiness. Now, I want to connect that theologically with beatitude. So, happiness is a word we have in the English language. Um, the Latin that is used by St. Thomas and Augustine is beatitude, which is a bit more specific. And, you know, in the Gospels, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives that sermon on the beatitude. We have the problem, you know, so many of our English translations rather weakly talk about happy. Um, and it's very hard to actually make sense of the passage if you have a very weak English word happy in there. Okay, page six. The Lord... Um, the Lord chose to start his teaching on the moral life, the Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes. And the Catechism reiterates the ancient interpretation of the Beatitudes, namely, the Beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ. You know, countenance meaning the face. What does Jesus look like? The Beatitudes describe it. And I say, sadly, this understanding rarely features in parish homilies. Um, but you know, then I've got here three quotations from the last three popes on this interpretation. Uh, Joseph, could you read the first one for us? The truth, the blessed par excellence is only Jesus. He is, in fact, the true poor in spirit, the one afflicted, the meek one, the one hungering and thirsting for justice, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemaker. He is the one persecuted for the sake of justice. The Beatitudes show us the spiritual features of Jesus and thus express his mystery, the mystery of his death and resurrection, of his passion and of the joy of his resurrection. This mystery, which is the mystery of true blessedness, invites us to follow Jesus and thus to walk toward it. And Max, could you read the next the Beatitudes are invitations to discipleship and communion of life with Christ, since they are a sort of self-portrait of Christ. And Carlos? In these words is all novelty brought by Christ, and the whole novelty of Christ is in these words. In fact, the Beatitudes are Jesus' portraits, his way of life, and they are the way of true happiness, 
which we also can live with the grace that Jesus gives us. Uh, and Luciana, could you read the text from Matthew there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely. Because of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the point is, this is a text about the Lord Jesus. That blessedness means being like him. That this describes what he is like. And so I express that, quoting the Catechism. The goal of the virtuous life is to become like God. And how many of you have heard this in parish sermons? guessing not. You know, this is the catechism's interpretation of the Beatitudes, it's the last three popes, it's the patristic interpretation of the Beatitudes. Um, it's a beautiful thing to think of this as describing the Lord Jesus. You know, there's that liberal way of approaching the scriptures where they say, well, it was all made up afterwards. So long after Jesus died, the disciples kind of made it all up. Um, well, if you took that narrative, actually the Beatitudes are so weird, what they're saying, that it's almost as if they were made up to describe Jesus on the cross. Because they don't really make sense without being about Jesus. They're very weird things otherwise. Okay, so, talked about Aristotle's analysis of the desire for happiness in this. Talked about how this connects with what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, and how actually that is Jesus himself described for us here. I want philosophically on page seven now to map out in a bit more detail what the mind map on there has in the different colours, about what this desire for happiness So, I start quoting the Catechism. Um, Nicholas, could you read that quotation from the top of the page? The Beatitudes responds to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man, man it, the one who alone can fulfill it. Yeah, I think the Catechism said it a bit better than I had here, didn't it? Um, Okay, to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it, I think is what it must say. Okay. Now the thing I want us to consider, basically the rest of this page, is is this desire for happiness selfish? 
because there's if we use the English word for happiness it sounds selfish to want to be happy it sounds like it's the opposite of caring about other people but that obviously isn't what Jesus is saying um, when he's talking about happiness so the bullet points here See, many critiques of virtue theory dismiss its quest for fulfillment and happiness as selfish. Because virtue theory is all about things being fulfilled, actions being fulfilled and virtues, um, the goal of happiness. Um, and there are secular writers, like I remember interviewing one for my doctorate, um, just utterly dismissive of this whole approach, saying, well, it's just utterly selfish to be seeking your happiness. And Immanuel Kant, I quote here, he put these two things as enemies, being moral or being happy. He said happiness is not the end of a being with reason. He wanted rational beings. And he gave this example. He said, um, Victor, can you read that example for us? If an unfortunate man wishes for death, and yet preserve his life, Without loving it, not from inclination or fear, but from duty, then his merchant indeed has more content. So Kant himself, when he's wanting to describe the perfect moral example, has this guy whose life is so miserable he wants to kill himself. Um, but he lives not in the hope of being happy, but just because he knows it's wrong to kill yourself that this is how Kant portrays morality, that happiness and morality are complete enemies for Kant. And that's still how, sadly, a lot of our parishioners think about happiness. So they think about happiness as you know, what they do during the week, and then they give Sunday to God, maybe, but that those things don't connect, that God isn't really related to my wanting to be happy. So this is important because if we show what real happiness is about, we show how actually it feeds through all those days of the week. Okay, so Survey Pinker, so he was the Dominican you read last week, or for the last lecture. He says, happiness and goodness are not rivals. He says, in the past, the classical period, the good and happiness, Latin beatitude, formed a single concept expressed by a single word, good, bonum in Latin. So that the, in the Latin structure, it wasn't two rival things, but one word expressing all of it together in, in good. So that the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of goodness. So I've then got in some smaller font here an attempt to distinguish spiritual joy from physical pleasure. And these, in distinguishing them, I'm not saying that they're opposites. I'm saying they're, they're different. So the fact I've got these two... Um, lines in different directions. These aren't opposites, they're just different. Um, 
So as I said, you can have sorrow and be in pain, or you can have sorrow and be in pleasure. But you can have pleasure and be in spiritual joy. Or you can even have spiritual joy and be in pain. There's so many accounts of the martyrs going to their death, still nonetheless somehow witness this spiritual joy on their face as they go to die. Because if it's, if it's union with God, if it's love, that union that causes joy, then if you have love, you have joy. And you can have that love even when you're in physical pain. So it's engaging with whatever you're engaging with, be it pain, be it pleasure, in union with him who is the source of everything. That's what determines whether you are in joy or in sorrow. And so this quest for happiness in us isn't a quest for pleasure, it's a quest for joy. And these aren't enemies, you can have, you can have both. But ultimately this has to be the thing you're, you're aiming for. Does that make any sense? But you can see with these different words that this isn't typically how people talk. We talk about these things as, as being enemies or opposites. Um, in England, as with some strains of America, you have this Puritanism in the culture. And the Puritan feels if he's enjoying himself, that something's wrong. That when I'm being very serious and solemn and not happy, then God's happy. Whereas if I'm out at a party enjoying myself, then actually I've somehow got to put God out of the picture for a while. Whereas one of my favorite country western songs says, is about, of a, it's a woman singing about going out for the evening. I hope the dear Lord ain't looking tonight. Um, <laughs> that this thought that if I'm, if I'm going out to enjoy myself, um, God can't be in the picture. Because pleasure is put at the opposite of joy. Okay, so I'm going to read through that a bit more slowly, or a bit more specifically in my notes there. And so on one side, of the, the left-hand column is describing the physical. The right-hand column is describing the spiritual. So I say pleasure, delectatio, in the Latin of St. Thomas, is a physical Whereas joy is a spiritual thing. Men and animals experience delectatio, experience pleasure. Whereas angels and humans experience joy. So an animal can't experience joy. You know, a little kitten can look very cute. It can almost look like it's smiling at you. But it can't really experience joy, yeah? It's the, the thing about joy is it's something spiritual not just something physical. Okay, what causes it? This is the next line. 
Physical pleasure, delectatio, is caused by contact with a sensible physical good. In contrast, joy is a delight of the soul caused by interior apprehension, distinct from bodily delight, but not necessarily unrelated. So I, I apprehend the cookie. I engage with it intellectually, spiritually, and that causes a joy within me. And there, actually, that apprehending more easily happens as I'm eating it. It's not the enemy of pleasure. But actually that spiritual joy is caused by the apprehending of the good, not the, strictly speaking, the physically consuming of it. That causes the pleasure. Next little section. Physical pleasure, delectatio, only lasts Sorry, there's another missed thing there. So that should be lasts with an S. As long as the physical contact remains with the sensible good causing the delictus. Where spiritual joy perdures, it lasts, even after the immediate cause passes. Because a spiritual union is just a more lasting thing, whereas the physical needs that immediate physical contact, whereas I can have an intellectual union over a much longer period of time. And then, and this is pivotal for the question of whether it's selfish or not, pleasure cannot be shared without being diminished. If you share your cookie with someone, you each get less cookie and experience less physical pleasure. Spiritual joy, in contrast, can be shared. In fact, when it is shared, it increases. That sharing the physical cookie increases our spiritual joy. I share it with my friend. I rejoice that my friend and I both are enjoying the cookie. Less pleasure but more joy. That joy is shareable. And joy, in fact, increases when it's shared. So that therefore, the pursuit of joy is not selfish. In itself, it has this dynamism that is the opposite of being selfish. But that does mean you've got to seek it properly. If I'm seeking it, because even in the spiritual life, we can seek things wrong. So I can seek my perfection in a way that my fellow seminarian is a rival. That I'm not with him marching as two brothers in union with the Lord, but his succeeding, even in matters of virtue, makes me look bad. And I treat him as a rival. Yeah. Um, so the spiritual things, we have to always be refining ourselves, purifying our intention, correcting our intention, in order that what we're striving for is God in true joy, not just a twisted joy that isn't authentic.
But when it's authentic, it's not selfish. When it's authentic, it just is naturally, um, Pinky has used the word diffusive, that it, it shares out to others. Okay, page eight. So this is, I'm just going to unpack this a little more slowly now. I say we need to better analyze the cause of spiritual joy. So we're wanting, we're, there's this joy, desire within us, desire for it. Well, what actually causes it when it happens? Well, St. Thomas says, in rational beings, anything that can be the object of physical delectatio can also be the object of spiritual joy. I can experience the cookie rationally, rejoicing intellectually in its recipe and its texture, rejoicing spiritually, experiencing it as a gift from God. And then most fundamentally, Spiritual joy is the effect, is the fruit of charity. That the possession of authentic spiritual joy is thus a sign of union with God. That joy is a sign of fulfillment, of the excellence of virtue. And then directly quoting St. Thomas, joy is caused by love. Spiritual joy can therefore exist even alongside physical pain, but it can also exist alongside physical pleasure. That we're not Puritans, that the, the body isn't in itself a problem, that pleasure isn't in itself a problem. That I can seek pleasure in a selfish way, and often I do seek pleasure in a selfish way, but in itself, it isn't a problem. And that spiritual joy that comes from love, that comes from union with the lovable, that in itself is, is utterly shareable and rejoices in being shared. So the saints, have any of you read the book? Uh, the classic of the 1950s, a book called Saints, the Saint, um, no, let's see, Saints Were Not Sad by um, Frank Sheed, um, in which he's just portraying the life of various saints, that the saints weren't miserable, that if to be holy is to be in union with God, if joy is the fruit of that union, then, you know, the saints were joyful. Okay, then I just got a few bits here. I'm quoting Peter Kreeft. He has, in his book, uh, Back to Virtue, he analyzes the Beatitudes, and he's obviously particularly thinking about the English language and how this word happy as a translation of the Beatitudes really just sets us off completely in the wrong direction. So he makes a few contrasts between happiness and blessedness. So he says happiness is subjective, is a feeling, is a state of consciousness, is temporary, and is dependent 
on good fortune or chance. Whereas blessedness is an objective state, not a feeling, is permanent, not transient, and is not dependent on fortune. It depends on union with God. And so I'm going to guess you may, when you're looking at Aristotle, um, notice that, that Aristotle sees this as a problem. So he notes that how can happiness um, be the end if it's so transient? That he sees all kinds of people that are happy at one stage and then become miserable, that they lose their house, they lose their wife. Um, if it's dependent on fortune, it can't be stable because fortune rises and falls. Okay, so all of this, why are we looking at this? We're looking at this because, on one hand, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts his explanation of the moral life by giving us the Beatitudes, by putting the question of blessedness before us. And the Catechism says, in a sense, making reference to Aristotle and that philosophical analysis, that there is just this natural desire for happiness within us. And Jesus meets that natural desire with his promises and the Beatitudes in the Gospel. And he does so because this desire for happiness in us is only in us because we come from God. There is enough in here to do a few of your meditations in chapel, yes? Properly in analyzing pleasure, joy. Um, and to ask yourself when you are examining your conscience, these things I enjoyed today, did I enjoy them in union with God as part of my love with him? Or did I just kind of make them an escape from God in having the pleasure, but somehow just leaving God aside for a bit. Whereas the deepest enjoyment of all of them is when those go together. Yeah. Okay, so we have four terms now. Pleasure, joy, happiness, and blessedness. Um, where do these two fit in with happiness and blessedness? Which two, again? Pleasure and joy. Um, blessedness would be the same as um, Gaudium, joy. Um, okay. And happiness. In a sense, happiness, I'm wanting to say, is just a very imprecise term. So when St. Thomas is talking about it, he's writing in Latin, so he uses the word beatitude, similarly with St. Augustine. Aristotle would be writing in Greek, so he doesn't really give us a direct correlation. But when he's analyzing the problem of happiness, one of the things he's analyzing is that if it's only a thing of pleasure, that can't really be what it's about. So is the attitude more properly speaking <clears throat> blessedness over happiness? Yes. 
because yep. it resides in Julie. Yes, so blessedness and beatitude are the same word, same concept. Um, happiness is a less precise description. Yeah. Everyone with me on those? Because that's actually a very important clarifying thing about everything I've been talking about. Um, okay, so 15 minutes left. I want to go through, in a sense, the, the prior bits, the prior article to this, connecting that with the image of God. So, back to page two of the notes. And really what we're connecting here is, why is there that thing in me that makes me yearn for something that the rest of the plants and the animals don't? That they're all quite happy out there as they are. But there's something in me that's yearning for more. Well, that's because there's something in me that is more, that is in the image of God. So, top of page two, I ask the question, who am I, or what am I? And then I quote um, Paul VI's address at the close of the Second Vatican Council. He said, man by himself is a mystery to himself. So what is the thing that unveils the mystery? Well, it's seeing Jesus. So it is Jesus Christ who fully reveals man to himself. I, as a man, I don't know what I am. I know I'm something. I know I'm something special. I know I'm something more than the ducks and the, the, the deer out there. But what am I? But when I see Jesus, then I see what I am. He reveals me to myself. So that point was one of the foundational teachings of the Second Vatican Council. Those of you familiar with John Paul II, it was one of his, possibly his defining image of his teaching. So in the midst of his whole communist, atheist Existence. What is man that man cannot explain himself in the atheist culture? The only thing that explains him is looking to Jesus Christ. Uh, Sam, can you read that quotation? This is from the Catechism in itself, quoting from Vatican II. Christ, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, makes man fully manifest to himself and brings to light his exalted vocation. It is in Christ, the image of the invisible God, that man has been created in the image and likeness of the Creator. It is in Christ, Redeemer and Savior, that the divine image, disfigured in man by the first sin, has been restored to its original beauty and ennobled by the grace of God. Basically what I want to do is I just want to unpack what that paragraph is saying. 
So first I say in bold that the human person, what is he? He's made in the image and likeness of God. He's called to be a son of God and to attain the perfection of charity, which is holiness. Now, you know, charity here is, is love. Yes, it's not giving to the poor. It's, technically speaking, the word charity means that possession of that love that is the very life of God. And so when we possess that love that is the life of God, then we are in possession of that holiness that is God. So again, in the English language, we have a problem with this word charity that we've kind of reduced it to a very material thing about giving money. It is actually something that's directing, directly connecting us to this relationship between the persons of the Trinity of the life of God himself. Okay, then I note here, I said the catechism already has fully answered the above question, the question, what is man, um, earlier in the catechism. But it repeats, it reiterates that answer, what is man, before it then describes the moral life the section we're looking at in this course. Because you can't understand human action unless you understand what a human is. So the Catechism repeats the description of what a human is before we then, in this whole section, look at human action. So, got a little section here I've called Unique in Creation. So, Catechism, quoting Vasquez II, says, the human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. So everything else out there is willed by God, but as a means to something else, as a part of the whole. The human person is so magnificent that each one of us is willed for his own sake. Man is destined for eternal beatitude, beatitude being that sharing in the bliss, which is God's very self. That man has a spiritual and immortal soul, and with the soul we have powers of intellect, will, and freedom. And with that, man alone in the material creation is capable of being moral. The intellect gives man reason. Reason enables us to recognize the voice of God and follow his law. And it is in living a moral life that we bear witness to the dignity of the person. So that's another typo there. I, the moral life accords with the dignity of being in God's image and likeness. Okay, a little more on the image of God. Um, so God, what is God like? Um, well, he is perfection. He's the perfection of all the perfections, of goodness, of beauty, of truth. Um, but structurally, philosophically, he is rational. And he has, therefore, 
a rational appetite, the will, he acts freely. Well, we are in his image. We are also rational and have a will and are free in his image. I say the purpose of the image of God in us is to make us capable of turning to God. So why has he made us what we are? So that we would be able to turn to him. That if I didn't have an intellect, a will, and freedom that come with that, I wouldn't be able to turn to him. In quote St. Thomas, in virtue of having an intellectual nature, man has a natural aptitude for understanding and loving God. This consists in the very nature of mind, which is common to all men. Man has in him a yearning that is innate, a yearning for God. In quoting St. Augustine, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And the point I wanted to make in this section is summed up in the next thing. Intrinsic, not extrinsic. So, um, if you're seen in ancient movies when somebody puts a seal on wax, you know, they, someone writes a fancy letter, they roll it in a scroll, they pour melted wax and they seal it with some, usually some seal on their ring. They imprint the image, their image on it from the outside. Now the image of God in you is not like that. It's not imprinted on you from the outside. It's already there. The type of being you are is in the image of God. So when you're given a sacramental grace, there's an image, a seal imprinted on you. Baptism confers a sacramental seal Confirmation confers a sacramental seal. Priestly ordination confers a sacramental seal. But the image of God in you is not like that. It's just there from the very fact of what you are. You can't lose it because you are human. It's in you as what you are. Let me read what I've said here. The image of God is not in us, the, rather, the image of God in us is not imprinted from the outside like a stamp. Rather, this image comes from the type of being that we are, possessing intellect and will. The image is not added to man after his creation. Rather, it exists as what he has been created as. By contrast, a sacramental character, a a seal is imprinted on the soul, like on a coin. Whereas the image of God in you is what you are. Any thoughts on that? Does that make sense? Do I need scared to? me for a little bit because all summer for Thursday I was teaching kids and it's a wax seal, but we were teaching sacraments. And what I love in this right. image and likeness of God. I was like, oh man, I think I caught it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I'd never taught heresy in my um, 
I've taught many accidental heresies over the years. Um, sadly, after ordination, I've taught many accidental heresies. Um, so I usually have typed up all my sermons, so I have them typed up, and sometimes I will refer to try and uh, cheat and get a basis of a fresh sermon from something, and I'll look back and I'll say, did I say that? Um, so, yeah, yeah don't worry. <laughs> um, Okay, so the spiritual soul, next little section here. So the catechism refers to the soul as a spiritual thing. So we are not just a soul, we're a soul and body, a composite. Um, the catechism specifies the human soul as spiritual. And note that many people make, say, vague things about being spiritual and about the soul. But the catechism isn't being vague, it's being specific. So I imagine on this side of the Atlantic as well, you'll have people say, oh, I'm a very spiritual person, by which they mean that they, they sit down and pause over their cup of coffee in the morning. Um, they, they don't think about God at all, but they, just because they're a reflective person that I'm a spiritual person. Yes, do you let's talk over here as well? Yes. Um, well, when the catechism is saying a spiritual soul... That's not what it means. It means something quite specific. Spiritual as distinct from material. Not the enemy of the material, but distinct from it. And you as a human being, you have a body and a soul. You are not complete if you are only one of those. So you know the souls of those who have died, and they don't have a body. For St. Thomas Aquinas, he has a big part of his summa trying to describe well actually how is that possible to continue to exist when you don't have a body because you are a body soul unity and there's this big bit of you that's missing um, and basically his answer to the problem is that the soul still exists in union with the body but in union with a future resurrected body that God has already predetermined you will have so you have a weird transitional state but you still are in union with that body you will have whether it's a body that will correspond to your virtue and holiness a beautiful body that you will rise manifesting all the goodness in your soul or whether you will rise with a corrupted foul body manifesting of all the foulness in your soul, but that you are in relationship with that future body you will have, even when you're in this separated soul state after death. Okay, um, I think the bits I say on the next rest of that page are unnecessary, so we won't go through those. But just to very briefly say, angels also are in the image of God because they have an intellect and will. Um, animals are not in the image of God because they don't have an image and will. Um, they are from God, but they lack that thing that makes them of his image, having a rational nature. Okay, we've done some technical stuff here. Um, this is stuff I think is 
hugely uh, important and exciting. You know, when we're analyzing happiness, analyzing all this stuff within us all the time, um, to be trying to think about how to engage with it more properly. Um, I hope you can take this away, not just to be able to answer a question in the exam, but to, to live a better life. Any final questions? So we keep today the birthday of Our Lady. And we don't normally keep birthdays of saints. Um, my preparation for today, I realized actually, you know, it's almost always the death of a saint's day is the day we observe for them, the day they enter into glory. There are only three births that we celebrate in the liturgy of the church, the birth of the Lord at Christmas, the birth of John the Baptist that was obviously pivotal in preparing for that, and then today's feast that of the birthday of Our Lady. That today's feast is therefore a moment to think about her beginnings and in those beginnings of the plan of God. So the choice of readings we had today, I made that focus even clearer by in our second reading choosing the Romans text that talks about the predestination that obviously is even clearer in Our Lady. That God had a plan, a plan for his coming. The genealogy we heard is a clear indication of that, taking us back 42 generations, a reminder of how his plan went back and back and back and back. And even before Abraham, his plan was there. His plan in her. So there's a great Marian hymn, Mary Immaculate, Star of the Morning, that has as its second line, chosen before creation began. And the great John Paul II, in his letter on Our Lady Redemptorist Martyr, says that she was present in the mystery of Christ before the creation of the world. That obviously she wasn't physically present before the Incarnation, before the creation of matter, but she was present in the mind of God. That his, her role in his coming was so pivotal that she was there. That God had a plan, a plan to come, and she was essential to that plan. Now, what relevance does this have for ourselves? Well, one of the obvious corollaries would be a reminder of his plan for us, each of us. That he doesn't just have a plan for her and no plan for anybody else. His providence covers each of us. And in the living of the priesthood, it's very important to have an, a living awareness of his providential care, a living awareness that his plan covers all the things that comes to us. And I would say for myself, it's, I think, been one of the blessings of my priesthood that I've had a, a very strong sense of that through my priesthood. And it's, it's 
been very important. We need to know that when things are going well, I've had plenty of times of that in my priesthood. In fact, I've had long years of my priesthood when things have, in a sense, been going so well, so easily, that I've said to my spiritual director, you know, the saints talk about God loving them by sending them crosses. Well, why is my life so easy? I've had times when it's been easy. And I've had to learn that actually that also is God's providential plan. That sometimes he knows we're weak. And that we can't take any more buffeting. And that we need him to, in a sense, make it easy for us. But I think one of the things I've, I've tried to hold on to in that is that in his providence, if he's making it easy, if he's, in a sense, giving me gifts, then I need to make sure I'm using those gifts. That I'm not taking those, in a sense, gentle moments in my priesthood and just goofing off. But I'm taking those moments to, in a sense, push myself harder with the gifts that I'm aware of him giving me. But then, like all of us, I've had moments when it's the opposite. And those two, in a different way, we need to remember that this is part of God's providential care for me. That the, the buffeting, the, the, the blows of the cross, that these come to me because he loves me. So we had in our second reading there, Romans 8, 28, all things work for the good of those who love the Lord. That being humbled can bring me to him. Being weak can bring me to him. Being crushed can bring me to him. Not that some things work to the good of those who love the Lord, but all things. All things work to the good of those who love the Lord. Well, finally, this semester, his plan. Because his plan covers every detail. His plan includes this semester. And I know for myself, this isn't the semester I wanted. I didn't want the COVID restrictions. I wanted to drive up and see Lake Erie. I wanted to see my family in Iowa and Northern Illinois and New York. I didn't want the COVID restrictions. You didn't want them. But these aren't somehow outside of God's plan for us. Somehow his goodness to me, his goodness to you, includes what will come to us this semester. So when we find it, when we find it easy this semester, well, let's rejoice in those easy moments the way Our Lady rejoiced in the Magnificat. But take those not as moments to goof off, but as moments to be opportunities to grasp. And when we find it tough, let's recall his plan works through that too, as he worked through Our Lady at the foot of the cross. The birthday of Our Lady. 
God had a plan, a plan in the beginning, a plan even before her birth, a plan we think of in particular in thinking of her birth. And he had a plan for me, and a plan for you, and a plan for this semester.